Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are high-performing fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. And to that end, on today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Ted Jenkins where we talked about how every investment of effort you make on your proprietary playbook not only drives the client experience and increases organic growth through advocacy, but also drives your enterprise value. Now, this podcast was also taken from a recent webinar we did with Ted, and the content was so solid that we wanted to share this further. So I hope you enjoy it. If you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And as always, if you have any ideas on topics that you'd like to hear on this podcast in the future, just let us know. Thanks for listening. Great to be here. Great to see everybody here. Ted, as always, really glad you could make some time for us because you are probably the busiest guy I know. Um, (laughs) Building a business set up for acquisition. So I just want to start by just reminding everybody that this is independent of your timing. Whether you're, you're, you're not even there in terms of thinking about a, a timeline, uh, hopefully your business is incredibly fulfilling right now and you're enjoying the value you bring to your client community. But I just want to remind you in the spirit and the mindset of planning and preparation, every business is in fact built to be sold at some point. And every investment of effort you make contributes to that enterprise value, okay? It is, again, a form of forced savings. So before we get too far into the weeds, I just want to say uh, hello uh, to Ted. And for those of you who don't know Ted, just to introduce you uh, to our, our community here, Ted, you're, you're definitely the most innovative financial professional I've met. I love your story, your backstory. You are so uniquely qualified to talk about this because none of it is theory. You have sold a business. And because of those outcomes, the things that you've learned, you've now made this uh, part of your business model is to enable and assist and navigate advisors through the exercise, both in terms of the ramp up and the preparation and the execution. So right up front, just thanks for being here again. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. It's a good conversation. One thing that I've noticed in my consultations over the course of the last couple of years is for many very enlightened fee-for-service financial professionals, there is another level of rejuvenation in terms of their calling, their sense of purpose, because I think they've really felt their impact on people. Uh, Based on on the depth of some of the conversations, the way clients have opened up about some of their apprehensions and anxieties around the future, or, you know, I I think for so many, they realize that I cast a pretty significant shadow. So that rejuvenation is massive. But secondly, having that mindset of going beyond 
the mindset of the technician. Thinking beyond technical ability. Okay, so, you know, a financial professional brings meaningful and measurable value to a client's life and their family. That's massive. We just want them to take that same level of importance and apply it to the other aspects of their enterprise, all in the spirit of driving that enterprise value and accelerating that eventual uh, end game. So uh, before I let you take that, let's go right to um, um, the, the Slido slide there, Tyler. <clears throat> yeah, so again, let's just detach from the timing. You're a lifelong planner. It could be, you know, I, I often say to myself, I'm never selling my business. But then other times I say, you know what, my, my kids don't want to take it over. Um, I want there to be an exit and a liquidity event that all of my team can participate in. So why don't we just be mindful of all of the different factors that contribute to enterprise value. So with that, let's go to the next slide and I'll hand it over to you uh, as a starting point, Ted. You can talk about some of the things that uh, are front and center in your mind when you coach somebody through this process. Yeah, well, thanks, Duncan. And, and it, it's really a, a fascinating slide to start with because we spend our lives, and, and I did for the good part of 30 years here, sitting down with uh, clients and, and uh, other cases that I worked on, and we'd sit with customers and we'd ask them a, a question, you know, what's your number? Uh, how much money do you think you need in your bank account the day that you retire in order to be able to maintain your standard of living for the rest of your life? And we as financial advisors backtrack the numbers. <laughs> we look at social security, pensions, other investable assets, and we help our clients figure out two big numbers. How much do they need to save and what rate of return do they need to get? But the real question that you should be asking yourself is that whether you uh, did that Slido poll and you said, I'm going to sell in one to five years or I'm going to sell eventually down the road, do you actually know what that number would need to be for yourself? So if, if you're doing a million dollars of revenue and one day somebody walked in and said, I'd give you $6 million for your practice, would you say yes? Could you say yes? Uh, I've met advisors in this business that basically milk their practice like it's a cash cow and they've got a Lamborghini and a Ferrari and they've got, you know, two, two uh, different rental properties and all kinds of stuff, but they really don't have enough money to retire. And I've met other advisors that, you know, heed their own advice and they save and scrimp every penny. But you need to know that number because if you're going to negotiate a transaction for the value of your business, wouldn't it be important to go into that negotiation and know how much money you're going to need at the end of it, probably net of tax, to be able to get you where you want to go? And I'm going to tell you, Duncan, I've talked to hundreds of advisors about this as I've been uh, involved in helping people look at this for their own business. And so many financial advisors just don't, they don't know. They've never gone through that exercise themselves. So it's like, you know, the cobbler's kids, it, it, it is the way that it is. Okay. And so let's uh, give this a bit of a frame. Uh, I did a consultation yesterday with a pretty substantial team and we were talking about beginning with the end in mind, what is the number? And an interesting thing that came out of that is that often when they themselves have a client that has a liquidity event, the number they attain 
and once the dust settles, is actually bigger than they ever thought would happen. Okay, which is an interesting window into the mindset there. But I said to this team, I said, I, I want you to create three distinct sections. Okay, so, uh, you know, just write out the letters AUM. So everything with respect to the quantitative AUM, EBITDA, and those factors add to the enterprise value. The second section is IP, all the elements around intellectual property, processes that are defined, branding, all of those elements, they contribute to enterprise value. And then the third category that actually led to the most meaningful part of the consultation is I called it CQ, I called it the credibility quotient, okay? The degree of predisposition that you create for a buyer and the degree of credibility you amplify because of how serious you take things like HR, uh, the quality of your books, and all of these other sort of what I would call X factor things that some people tend to sort of uh, put off or, or trivialize, that contributes to enterprise value. And based on our conversations, Ted, I said, you know, the first category can be two to three X. You add the second category, now you're getting into the four to five X. You add the third category, now you're getting into five to six X. Does that hold up for you in terms of a framework? Yeah, of, of course, you know, you've got to have volume to be able to still command those kind of multiples in the marketplace and recognize that commanding those multiples from another advisor is very difficult because they're the ones that have to come up with the money. But Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of advisors that still run their their practice not as a business, Duncan, and that that's a real problem. There's a reason why all good businesses run in a very systematized process. And so, yes, if you have HR, your employment agreements, Duncan, I saw an OSJ. And for those of you that have an OSJ model, it's really not that valuable. You have to think about it. Who's going to drag along with you if you get sold out? And if you don't have drag alongs on your contracts, that's a problem. Right. So. Absolutely what you're talking about, the systematized money management, the financial planning process, being able to have that business be a repeatable, replicable, scalable model will ultimately give you more of a multiplicative effect down the road. Well, and I do want to get to some of the outsourcing dynamics and the impact that can have as well, but let's move to the next slide. I really like this. When we had our last conversation, we talked about this economic value income grid this is, again, such a great framework to give some specificity to what uh, an advisory team needs to consider to get into that next level of enterprise value. So I'll let you run with this. Yeah, I mean, this is just uh, my grid, but I think for everyone that's on the broadcast today, you know, here's what to think about. The, the basic law of economics has never really changed in life. And what we've heard when you see supply chain issues around the world is this law of supply and demand, right? But the same is true for the ways that you get paid income as a financial advisor. And some skills are trainable and some skills are learnable. So if you think about it, you know, hiring someone to basically do paperwork, change addresses, rechange beneficiaries, that basic task clerical job, it, it's a job that's necessary. We all agree. But at the same token, it's never going to pay a lot of money because it's highly replaceable, right? Um, you don't necessarily have to be a, a rocket scientist to be able to fill out paperwork, but it's a necessary part of the job. Uh, as you scale in your career, here's where most people get locked up, Duncan, is that 
you can become professionally extremely technically competent. I know this because I did it the wrong way first. I have six designations in this field. I got CFP, CRPC. I got uh, the College for Financial Planning has got me on payroll forever. I mean, I, I, you know, every couple of years it cost me tons of money to renew all those designations. But I was under the assumption that if I was more technically competent, it would automatically mm -hmm. make me more money. And that is not true in the scale of supply and demand, which is why if you're listening to this and like you're an amazing technical analyst with stocks and you know alpha, beta, sharp ratios and all this stuff, God bless you. But when your income sits at 100 to 200K, you may be asking yourself, I don't understand. I'm really smart. I'm a good CFP. I know how to do financial planning better than my competition, but my income's not growing. And that's because, Duncan, of the law of supply and demand in terms of what I call the economic value income grid. So if you want to scale your income, you have to get good at three skills, one being the most important. Sales is important. You may want to say that you're not a salesperson, but you have to convince people to hire you and convince people in many cases to move their money. That's sales. But the real skills you have to learn are, number one, how to become an entrepreneur or a business owner. And if you're a really good business owner and you're a really good salesperson, but you're not that great of a financial advisor, not that any of us would say that we aren't, but if you're not, you'll actually probably make more money than that technically competent CFP who's not such a good business owner. But the number one skill and what really changed it for me when I grew our business huge is to become a full-time marketer because it is the highest paying skill in America. Take somebody like Tiger Woods. He's at the tail end of his career. He never really made more than $10 million a year playing golf, but he made $100 million a year of endorsements. When Bill Gates built Microsoft software and it ended up getting into 90% of the households in America, is it the best software? It's good software, but 90% market share is what made that company the number one company in the world. And even still today, when you look at the market cap, top couple, they, they change uh, places all the time at the top, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, but just huge, huge companies. And even look at Elon Musk. I mean, yes, people love the cars. This guy is the marketer of marketers. He's got everyone sitting on pins and needles all the time. This is why he's the wealthiest guy in the world. So I want you to just think about that because if you're choosing, for those of you that said, I'm gonna sell in five years or eventually, ask yourself where you're really spending your time and your money. And if it's not on increasing marketing, entrepreneur, and sales, I'm not telling you that's a bad thing. I'm just saying you're not going to scale your income as fast as you could. Well, and again, semantics, whether it's sales or business development, marketing, branding, whatever you want to call it, bottom line is, mm -hmm. and you uh, cracked this code, is you took thought leadership seriously. And over time, you built a reputational equity where you were sought out for your opinion, whether it was on TV or in various, uh, you know, digital or publications. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard to put your finger on that in terms of its value, but that added impact to the uh, enterprise value of your business. And again, um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that whole mindset of sell and stay. Okay, so you're not selling to a peer or not selling to a colleague but somebody's buying your business because of its core intrinsic value. And then you get to stay and you're liberated to go even deeper into those uh, X factor qualities such as yourself. Uh, that's quite profound. So with that, 
and we'll let this cascade down, but let, let's go to the next slide. Let's talk about this notion of liberating yourself to go into the things that drive enterprise value through outsourcing and taking some things very seriously. So I'll let you build on this too. Yeah, um, so one thing, one thing you should know <clears throat> if you're thinking about selling your business one day is contracts matter. When I say contracts matter, I'm not sure we all take our legal contracts as uh, uh, matter as much as we should. So let's say you built a business, you've got a couple of staff employees, but you brought on some advisors, but you kept them as 1099s. So you're, you're basically got a mini OSJ, or you just got a couple of subcontracted advisors in your practice. The challenge when you sell is then you're in the mode that you've got to convince those advisors to actually go with you if they sell, because technically speaking, they're not employees of the business. So you either need to make people employees of the business, which I think may be a better model, but if you have 1099s, you're gonna to wanna to create some legal contracts that have drag along or tag along rights. And what I mean by that is that the contracts basically say, well, if I sell, you go and so do the clients. Because if they don't, <clears throat> you think you could be building something meaningful, but truth be told, most people that have an OSJ on here, even if it's an OSJ of 20, it's not that valuable because in order for it to be valuable, everybody would have to go for the override stream to continue to be in there. So one thing just to know in there is that if you take on partners or you have sub-advisors, it's super important that you get your legal contracts um, in place. Non-competes, non non-solicits, or like I said, tag-along, drag-along rights. As it pertains to outsourcing, um, most of you probably believe um, that money management is your secret sauce. And I'm just gonna tell you that it's not. Uh, nobody's gonna buy you because you've got some great small cap strategy or you've got some tremendous uh, new process. You have some, I talked to some advisor in North Carolina, Duncan, he's like, I couldn't even remember the method. He goes, I pick stocks through the blah, blah, blah method. And you know, I beat the S&P every year. And you know, I thought to myself, nobody cares who's buying. Your clients might care now, but to try to train someone to come into that model or get a buyer to buy that model, it's un, it's unsellable. It's not saleable at all. So, so when your ability to basically have a have a, a business that's turnkey and it doesn't have lots of wrinkles, you know, most practices, Duncan, it's like when you sell a house, you know which water faucet leaks. You know, you know where where the the junk is in your house. And by the way. Y'all got junk in your practices as well. You don't want to come back later and be like, well, I forgot, you know, Mary works part-time, but she's kind of a contractor, but she does talk to clients. And it's like, the more you have to explain this away, the more difficult it is to sell the business down the road. That's why you outsource and, and systematize. Okay, so in a minute, I'm gonna come back to uh, some of the steps that you took to drive your branding from a social perspective, but also from a PR perspective. But let's park that for a second. Let's build yeah. on this in terms of outsourcing, because I'm going to assume this is one of the things that caught you by surprise. As you got into the weeds uh, and started making your checklists available and started talking to people about staging their business and getting those leaky faucets addressed, can I assume that the, the element around the tidiness of the books or the lack of tidiness was... <laughs> A little bit shocking to you that that was neglected by some of the people trying to sell their business? Well, for, first of all, some advisors don't keep books at all. Um, you know, they're like, you can see my credit card statement. Some keep books on like an Excel spreadsheet, which I think is kind of funny. 
and then some are more thoughtful and the general ledger looks really good um, on their QuickBooks or whatever software you're using, I'm gonna tell all of you to spend you know, a few hundred dollars a month, whether you do it internally or you do it externally and get a bookkeeper to look at your revenue and being able to segregate it, how much of it is advisory revenue, how much is insurance revenue, how much is commission revenue, to be able to granularly be able to put together the expenses are super critical because, look, the, a lot of companies that buy, they're not stupid. They know that that you put stuff in the business that really isn't business expenses. You got your kids on payroll, you got tickets to stuff that's really part you, but you could say it's part for the business. It's not like this is anybody's first rodeo. So the key to getting that granular on there so you can have a true discussion about the EBITDA of the business because a lot of these companies will end up paying you for the ad backs of stuff that you throw as fluff through your business, but not if it's not organized. If you're like, well, well wait a minute, Duncan, let me get my uh, chase card and I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I did last year. That, that's not going to fly. So <laughs> the more that you have this um, uh, organized, it would, it, I got to tell you, and I can give people some resources on where to get books done if you need somebody. But there are a lot of bookkeepers out there. I just recommend getting it done. But so many people way, way disorganized, Duncan, way disorganized. Well, let's move to that books uh, slide. And uh, I think what people maybe underestimate is <clears throat> the moment you have to play defense and rationalize some of those gaps, you're undermining the dynamic of who's in the driver's seat on the transaction. It's not unlike a real estate deal where if this house is so fundamentally sound and so in impeccably maintained, and you've got some market forces on your side, uh, you can create a bidding war where you just sit back and let them compete with each other on who wants to pay top dollar. You're not playing defense. You're not trying to convince anybody because you're so transparent and nobody's finding anything out. They're not finding out the leaky faucet. You're transparently letting them know, this is who I am, this is where I stand. So, um, okay, with that, let's talk about my favorite part of this, which is the whole dynamic around branding, okay? And I just wanna let everybody know that uh, Ted is available to have a conversation with you. He's got some unbelievable resources, uh, checklists and just progressions to follow to put the odds in your favor. This one to me, especially now, is incredibly profound. So Ted, first of all, I wanna talk about your branding that you engaged in with Oxygen and, and what it was that that tipped you off to this being an X factor because whenever I see you uh, being interviewed uh, on TV or whatever the case may be, it's evident that you've got the technical ability. But I think what people really like about you and why they keep coming back to you to get you uh, in an interview is because you tell great stories and you talk in a way that people, that it's not jargon filled, it's interesting. Was that deliberate out of the gate? Did you understand the impact that was going to have on your brand reputation and your enterprise value? Or did it just sort of occur to you as you got going? No, uh, I would be lying if I said when this all started, I, I, I inherently knew how important this stuff would be. Um, what I did know is that everything that seemed traditional to me in terms of marketing, I wanted to stop doing when I left corporate America. So I, I didn't want to do dinner seminars anymore. I didn't want to have to do lunch and learns. I didn't want to have to do client bring a friends. I didn't want to have to 
glad hand CPAs, attorneys, and mortgage brokers. Hope they'll give me a referral. Um, and I was trying to figure out how could I reverse engineer the funnel to get leads to chase me as opposed to me to chase the leads. And what I learned in my time with corporate America is that, you know, when you think about your company, um, and, and really in our industry, Duncan, you know, we, we've been taught as financial professionals to really focus only on short-term ROI. And it probably is the way that most people on the broadcast make their marketing decisions today. Okay, I'll invest $5,000, but if I don't get nine new clients in the next three months, I'm gonna quit. You know, or I'll invest 20 grand in marketing, but if I don't get at least 20 million AUM, uh, uh, I'm gonna quit. And there's really two sides to the business you have to look at. That you do need short-term ROI on some of your marketing, but the branding is important because one, long-term leads will chase you. And two, if your brand has what's called to me, uh, unaided awareness that people could actually say your name in your city without being aided at all, you can command a slightly higher multiple on your practice because of that brand. It's the reason that McDonald's is worth so much more than Joe's Hamburger Shack, right? It, it's the reason that Yeti Cups can sell for a bigger number because they have brand. And most financial advisors are unwilling to spend on brand because you can't see the ROI <clears throat> immediately. So Duncan, I learned everything I could first in 2008 about blogging. Um, I've, I've written at least 2,000 blogs, maybe it's 3,000 blogs. <clears throat> They're all still all around the internet. And then eventually I learned how to do media. And to me, and you all probably agree, people are so media focused today that once you get into the media or once you're in even small time media in your city, people just think that you're so much better than you are. So I trained, I got myself a teleprompter, I learned how to give credible interviews, but then most importantly, what I learned, Duncan, and I'll tell everybody, this is a big secret, <clears throat> I think that you'll never hear anywhere else, is that the lower common denominator topics that you talk about are way more valuable than highfalutin technical financial mm -hmm. stuff. So let me give you a great example, Duncan. I'm doing an interview with CNN and Headline News on Saturday around the Super Bowl. <clears throat> and they wanna talk about how you do a Super Bowl party on a budget. And so I had to create something that's memorable. And what I'm doing is I'm talking about uh, with obviously inflation up huge and food prices up huge, how do you do it? So the Cincinnati Bengals, what's famous in Cincinnati is chili. And I'm talking about how to do your own skyline chili recipe in your house, which is spaghetti. It's got beans, you got diced onions, and, and you got some cheddar cheese, you know, and you could do it three-way, four-way, or five-way. And for the Rams, because, uh, you know, chicken wings and hamburger and steak are up so much, I'm talking about doing a vegan nachos. There's a famous place uh, that's been around for 30 years. It does vegan nachos, has avocado, which actually hasn't gone up that much. Pico de Gallo, blue and corn tortilla chips because of the colors of the Rams. And people are gonna be like, wow, that was a great topic. Now, for us here on this call, people will be like, no, nobody's got $3 million is gonna give it to you because you do a Super Bowl at, uh, thing like that. Yeah, they will. They will because they're like, wow, that seemed like a, a credible, smart person. It was an interesting topic. 
nobody wants to hear about nimkrutz on TV or crazy tax. They don't want to hear about this stuff. Maybe on CNBC here and there, but that's it's kind of commercial on there anyway. That's how you do it, and that's that's what I'll be doing, and that's what I learned to do is to do these little soundbitey type topics, and and uh, you know we brought in 300 million last year. Well, and the beautiful thing about thought leadership is you get invited on to a program like that. It's kind of a given that you've got that technical ability and you can weave in some elements that speak to your uh, core competency, but trust goes so much beyond that. There's a likability factor and talking about things that are relatable are so important. So uh, I know part of your process in helping somebody amp up their enterprise value takes into consideration the social, the PR, the thought leadership, content marketing, how you can create that professional contrast. And that is that is the intersection everybody needs to find themselves in, is if you can find that nexus between professional scarcity and professional contrast, you're that much more attractive to your point about who, who chases whom. And so if somebody listening in, doesn't have a timeline if they're thinking well maybe it's three to five years out that means you have three to five years to build uh reputational equity now the other thing i wanted to ask you because this is becoming a massive force i was just talking to jepson uh, about this a couple of days ago is more and more advisors building in a brand within the brand where they're creating an elevated client experience that's framed around the multi-family office, okay? Yeah. So they might have 15 or 25 clients who have three to five million dollars with them, but they've got all these other holdings. So the three to five million represents 15% of their overall net worth. It's a meaningful client <laughs> for the advisor, but over the next couple of years, some of that money is going to go into motion that's outside of the process that the advisor wants to attract. That elevated client experience, that brand within a brand will not only make them attractive so they're not going to lose those clients, but that's got to drive the enterprise value as well, would it not? Yeah, I mean, 100% it does. Um, and and you know this is why I've, I've always felt that that brand is is so important um you know for those of you that are saying and i know a lot of you get your clients from referrals i mean would the brand and the brand memorability would it would it double or triple the referrals absolutely i think 177 of the clients that came in last year were from referral for oxygen and uh you know the, the brand's so memorable that they they hear about us and people talk about us and it's it it's I just can't even stress to Duncan with what you're saying, how big video is going to be over the next um, five years. And, and I'll tell most of you that um, two simple things to know about this with marketing. You know, if you're marketing to everybody, you're marketing to nobody. Um, I'll tell you that. Uh, so keep marketing with that kind of net. You're marketing to nobody. And, you know, your your biggest challenge, my biggest challenge is around mind share right you know people's mind is all over the place looking at social stuff all the time you need to be on there more and more and more so you can stay top of mind that's the biggest challenge today and i've asked myself the thing duncan that some people should ask themselves do you think 10 years from now you'll still be able to charge one percent and maybe not do that much what if this went to a fee-for-service model tomorrow you'd have to have value in order to do flat fees, because when your clients see the flat fees and it's not buried inside of an account, 
what do you think will happen? So like, you know, Duncan, everyone really believes like, oh, I'll just charge 1% in 10 years from now. I'll just sit back and collect. And, you know, I've always said, Duncan, like you're never, you're never um, paid exactly what you're worth. You're either underpaid or you're overpaid. And so ask yourself what scenario you think you're in. And if you're saying this is crazy, I'm making a million dollars a year and I don't really have to do that much. How long do you think that's going to last in the law of supply and demand? It's not. You know, and that, that's, that's the things to be thinking about. Well, the market forces of commoditization are very effective. And so we do need to obviously insulate ourselves to amp up that uh, fee worthiness. But your point about all of these investments that are made in client experience around best practices and into branding and into the um, just the tidiness of all of those other elements a lot of that coincides with these triggering events, okay? Triggering events can be obviously when the, uh, an opportunity for a conversation occurs between a potential advocate and a friend and an influencer, okay? All of that is, is cascading towards those triggering events, but they can go the other way as well, where you got to assume that your top 25 to 30 clients are being hit on now more than ever by competitors and external forces. So there's gonna be that competitor proofing uh, built in as well. But with that, Ted, let's uh, ease into a bit of a call to action because I know you've got such incredible uh, resources so that people don't have to wing it when it comes to just making these investments in those outcomes uh, down the road. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, where somebody can go from here and what next steps could be if they want to uh, kick your tires and get to know you a little better. Yeah, I'd say, listen, if you're if you're interested, one, in having this whole branding, you know, how do I scale out my my lead gen and my branding at the same time? You can go to monetizemypractice.com. But if you're interested in starting to kick those tires and say, geez, I really want to know what my practice is worth. I don't recommend doing evaluation with FP Transitions. It's not a knock on them. It's just it, you might as well go on Zillow and see what your house is worth. But at the end of the day, your house is only going to be worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. I have a much better feel of the marketplace than these independent valuation companies. I really do. Um, I, I'm around 27 of the biggest publicly traded private equity, these independent. I just know where the market is at right now. And if you're if you're trying to look at that, you know, it'd be great to have a discussion at monetizemypractice.com. And, uh, you know, we could talk more about it. Um, and I do want to make one comment on here, Duncan. I know we're running short on time, but you talked about this brand within a brand. And uh, six years ago, I started a podcast called The Shrimp Tank. It's not The Shark Tank, it's The Shrimp Tank. And that's now become a brand within a brand inside of Oxygen. I, in this last week, I got to interview the founder of Spanx. Do you think that's a pretty good guest? I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if uh, you'll know the name. I don't know if they'll become a client. But nonetheless, what do you think they're going to say about me around the city of Atlanta? Um, I have the number, I had the number one sleep doctor in the country, a guy named Dr. Michael Bruce. I mean, what do you think happens when you're around these people and they go, hey, something good is going to happen because it's a brand, right? You know, and uh, I'd encourage you all, whether, whether, whatever you're doing around your brand, podcast wise, you're investing dollars on social, you're creating media or blogging, I mean, or video, it is gonna become so big, one, to bring in more assets, but two, when you wanna monetize my practice down the road, that's, it's gonna, it's gonna matter and add a, a multiple to your business. Well, you just go right back to Tiger Woods. I mean, 
he was not a 10, 10 times better than every other golfer when he was in his prime. Uh, he was just a little bit better, but his brand was dramatically better. And look at the legs of that branding, right? The shelf life has been uh, incredible. So that investment of effort that you're making, and the one thing I will say that really uh, impresses me about your commitment to branding and these other factors is the consistency. I don't, your mindset is not wired around campaigns and we, we need this to move the needle immediately, immediately. I think you understand, I know you do, that there's an incremental force here that builds over time. And here you are, and then you've got this confluence uh, that is occurring that is uh, so incredible. So what we'll do, we'll wrap up. I know we're gonna have you back on a regular basis, but uh, there's, these are always such great conversations. Don't wing it, talk to Ted, understand what needs to be considered. And if you have the luxury where you're not in a panic to get something done, uh, that is so incredibly profound. You can add so much uh, impact there. And Ted, I know we didn't really talk about it, but valuations, what are you seeing around uh, advisors who really figure this out and look at this panoramically instead of just their designations and those AUM and EBITDA numbers, those who take the full view, what is the difference between that and the big picture? Yeah, I'd say, you know, look, if you're on the market and you sell to another advisor, a lot of you know you'll get two times recurring revenue, maybe one times commission. You might be able to eke out as much as three times, and that's assuming you can get someone to either get a loan, you may be too big to do that, or they'll stretch out your cash flow over a longer period of time. Um, if you can get to that million of revenue, but especially Duncan, a million of cash flow, like earner, your, your actual take out of the business, I'm seeing them range anywhere from four to seven times uh, top line revenue at, at an all in offer. So imagine you did $3 million of revenue and someone said, here's $20 million. Would that be enough to say, okay, check please? Well, imagine they offered you 20 million, but you could keep doing what you're doing and getting getting paid to do what you do. So in a lot of cases, it's not a check, please Duncan and go away. It's a, here's a check and you can continue to do what you love to do. So I, I just don't think most advisors realize what that marketplace looks like. Well, and you're uh, the embodiment of the added sense of purpose and rejuvenation. You were always good at what you did, but when you had your event, Look at the impact it's had on your life qualitatively and the, your outlook and your impact on people's lives is very, very impressive. We have a question here. Uh, I'll let you take that one. What's the question? Oh, you don't see it there? I don't it's, see it. Oh, hang on. It's re with respect to next gen. What are the best ways to involve second generation uh, team members uh, it's such a powerful factor around continuity and secession. We have so many teams that are engaged in this. How important is it to have the continuity, secession, and uh, bench strength uh, as part of that uh, liquidity event? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, your, your stock literally goes up in value if you have a G2 successor ready to go. So if you've got somebody depending upon how you segment your clients, let's say they're servicing CD clients, but they're sitting on some of those A, B client meetings with you and they're familiar with the client base and they know how the practice runs and should 
you choose not necessarily want to retire, but you're like, oh, you know, I'd love to just work with 50 households and have this person take over more of them. That's very valuable. Now, if you end up having a G3 down the road where you have like a, a senior advisor and then you've got, you know, I, people use different terminology in the industry, but you've got somebody who's just a younger servicing advisor, that's even more valuable. So having bench strength is great. If you're a practitioner and you're doing a million eight in revenue and you have two staff people and there's nobody else, you just have to ask yourself when you're when you're gone, imagine you die. I mean, or, or you know, things change in your business, your health. I mean, the, the complete business goes downhill. So getting a G2 to me is is imperative. It's what made my deal more valuable is that I had a five year generation two successor that I trained. Now there's 17 employees in that business and there's three managing partners, Duncan, who are 38, 38 and 40 years old. I'm the old guy of 52 now, so <laughs> but uh, but they they're running it like clockwork and it's great. I'm you know I I don't do anything you know and that's that's the way it should be. Well, when you look at the convergence of that brand within the brand, and when the when the legacy advisor empowers <laughs> the protege, and but does not frame it as a handoff, it's positioned as an elevation in the client experience for the 80% of the clients who generate 20% yeah. of the business. There are veins of gold of untapped opportunity if that's transitioned properly based on, yes, it's a different person, but it's an elevation in the practice and the process. Uh, there can be all kinds of nuggets that come out of that as well. So yeah, well said. Okay, uh, I'll let you go. Thanks as always. We'll have you back uh, regularly. But um, again, monetizemypractice.com. Take this seriously. Take the long view. Chip away and you'll find this is gonna be such a great outcome when the time comes. So Ted, thanks very much as always. Thank you, thank you. Congratulations to all of you. I'm a fellow advisor just like you and I, a lot of respect for what you do, keep, keep plugging away. Yeah, well said. Okay, buddy, take care. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.